0: Are you the woge of food, and are we like the Stephen A. Smith? <laughs> like, are we just- yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm, 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 I mean, funny. on the on the like news break side, I am trying to be the woge of food. If I if I get up in the morning and the Los Angeles Times has run a story that I didn't have first, that's a bad day for me.
0: Welcome to the ketchup. Introducing your hosts, Eli Arith, editor in chief, and jeffrey cutnick ceo
2: and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously
1: of the craziest most bestest news-breaking food porn peddling viral website on the dot coms
2: it's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm dude this pizza is fucking crazy there's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right.
0: And welcome to the catch up. Jeff, we got a good one today, man. Yes, sir. Today on the podcast, we have Mr. Farley Elliott, a breakfast burrito loving stand up comic turned longtime food and drink writer for the city of Los Angeles. He's the author of a book called Los Angeles Street Food. He's the beautiful hands. Face and chef of one of my favorite YouTube videos, Tiny Hamsters Eating Things. And most prolifically, he's the senior editor of Eater Los Angeles, whose words are read by millions of hungry people every month. Farley, welcome to the catch up, man.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah,
0: Farley, where are you from and what brought you to L.A.?
1: what says I'm not from L.A.? Do I, well, I mean, I know I look like a guy who just like fell out of a turnip truck.
2: But... <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably because, just because of my research of, of listening to other pods. Yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, the pod I listened to, you had mentioned you weren't from L.A. at some point, but I don't know where outside of a reference to your brother coming from oh, the Midwest, yeah. potentially.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it's, I grew up in, in far northern New York, all the way up on the Canadian border. So okay. it has a kind of Midwestern vibe. Like, my town is 400 people, one stoplight, no restaurants. It's just a, a completely different world. My whole family is all lumberjacks, like in the Adirondack Mountains, and I'm That's like tight. I'm like the only one. I'm sort of the black sheep of the family, because I don't cut down trees for
0: a living. You don't? Do, do, you, have, <laughs> yeah. do you have dreams of it though? Though? No. Not at all? I have,
1: I have absolutely noticed. I mean, I moved to California when I was 20. Like, my dad and my older brother run the family business. My last name's Elliot. It's literally like Elliot and Sons. And I'm the only one who doesn't do it. And now my little brother, who just came out at 21, is, like, going to take over the family business someday.
0: Damn. He came yeah. out to L.A., though.
1: He came out to L.A. Like, he's he's got a slightly different vibe to him. He wants to, like, see a little bit more of the world. He's never going to live here. But he wants to eat spicy Thai food and, like, drive up to Santa Barbara and, like, do stuff. And I... I The only thing that is cool about me to any 21 year old in the universe is like some limited ability to like skip the line at Howlin' Rays if I need to. (laughs) Like, so that's, that's it. Like it was, it was fun. He got to meet, uh, you guys know Josh Scherer. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh. It's culinary bro down. bro down yeah culinary bro down he recently just changed his twitter and now he's like magical or mythical chef i don't know he's like he's too involved with these guys he's in too deep but <laughs> my like my little brother started watching rhett and link when he was 14 years old so as cool as it was to like try to eat him at every restaurant in los angeles our favorite thing was uh josh hooked it up and we got to like go meet rhett and link and they got to be there for a taping I and mean, he just my little brother was geeked he was so
0: excited 21 that's the age i love rhett and link too though that's just tight
1: it's I like what they do
2: on
0: YouTube, man. It's fun. So you're not cutting wood for a living?
1: I am am not currently. What I am doing is more in line with like shoveling coal into the content furnace, you know? Like like I just... A lot of my day-to-day is... Writing news stories covering the the beat of what it is to be in the restaurant industry in Los Angeles. And then the second half is trying to tell larger stories that matter in much bigger ways. I'm, I'm not a critic. I'm not anonymous. I'm much less concerned about whether or not the food on the plate is any good and more concerned with like what stories do restaurants have
0: to tell us. Yeah, I want to get to how you became to having the, the coolest job. I feel like it's the coolest job in I, I prefer it to being, I would never want to be a food critic. That shit is so hard.
1: You gotta to go to like six pasta places and be like, this one was slightly overcooked. Like that seems impossible to me. Or to know like, oh, this pizza is like some place in Rome that was doing it in 1898. Like who, ca- I have no reference point for any of that sort of stuff. Instead, I get to be like, This restaurant matters to this neighborhood. Here's why. This person is doing something you don't see often. Here's why. This is why street food matters to Los Angeles and always has. That sort of stuff, the larger, bigger pieces are really more interesting to me.
0: Well, how'd you become such a food savant? I mean, you moved here when you were 20. Were you a foodie then?
1: No, I mean, I went to college up on the central coast at Cal Poly, go Mustangs, and uh, (laughs) moved to Los Angeles at like 24 and was like literally just doing comedy stuff and working a day job. But I was, I was busted and broke. Like I had a, a motorcycle and a backpack so I would do this big loop where I'd go to my day job and I'd go over to UCB and I would like take classes and perform and then late at night I'd go to a new taco truck every night and I'm a, enough of a type A kind of guy that if I go to one place I want to go to two and then if I go to two I want to go to a thousand you know and that's that thing that drive like I used to have this google map and I'd put little pins down on like where I wanted to go or places that I tried I food I ate that I didn't understand that I could go look up later all that sort of shit so by the end of my first year in LA I'd been to like 125 taco trucks and now it's probably closer if you count all of street food into like the 700 range like Damn. but you there's fifty thousand street food vendors in los angeles county alone like i am not scratching the surface by any means so in that world like i just started to build a breadth of knowledge because i was too dumb to read the books but i could go eat a bunch and that's like how it got started <laughs> and that's to me i'm still endlessly fascinated by that like we talk a lot about restaurants <clears throat> At Eater that only kind of appeal to a certain type of clientele for better or worse. The major domos or bavels or burgers never say die, or even Dave's hot chickens of the world. Um, and, and we don't spend enough time even now talking about what Keith is doing at all flavor, no grease talking about what guys on the street are doing in Whittier. Like I just wrote a story a couple of weeks ago about like the, pastrami, burrito, breakfast burrito, chili cheese fry, kind of hamburger places that are on every block in Los Angeles and how yeah. they like, some of them have weird, insane names. Like it started as Tommy's and then it became Tammy's and then Tommy's and then Tommy's number three and like all these like derivatives of each other and, and how the, the truth is that 75% of Los Angeles has never heard of the restaurant Bestia, but they go to one of those places probably once a week and we should be talking more about those places and that, that holistic picture is I think becoming more and more important for me.
2: How, how long did you do stand up for in Los Angeles and and is it still present
1: in your writing voice? So I was more of like uh, on the improv comedy and like sketch writing side although I did do some stand up. Um I do think that we can be a little bit more fun with how we talk about food. I think it's not enough to just run the box scores on a place. Hey, this place opened, this place closed. We've got to provide context. We've got to, like, make it seem interesting and engaging to our audience. I think you guys are so good at that. You not only, like, know who your audience is, but you drill down into them super, super deep in a way that, like, we could get better at with Eater. And so for me, like... I don't know, I think I use a lot of that stuff, especially in my interpersonal and relationship skills, but I am hemmed in a little bit. I'm never writing my opinion, so it's a lot of like, it's gotta be factual if it's gonna make it out of the
0: page. So are you the woge of food, and are we like the Stephen <laughs> a. Smith? Like are we just Yes, like- yeah. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm, I mean, funny. on the on the like newsbreak side, I am trying to be the woge of food. If I, if I get up in the morning and the Los Angeles Times has run a story that I didn't have first, that's a bad day for me. Do you I, even
0: go to work that day? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like
1: my my work is like me in sweatpants at a glass table <laughs> as my wife like is like, do you really have a job? And like leaves behind me. But there have been a few days where I just have been like, motherfucker, like just sitting at home so mad about something because it, I don't know, like it, it matters. I I think. On the one side, egotistically, it's very good to be like, oh, I want to be the best guy for this thing all the the time. But I also believe in this sort of almost metaphysical way. People come to Eater because they believe that Eater is going to be their number one source for getting information first. And the moment that starts to leak out, from a variety of different sources, people just go. I don't need to go to Eater all the time. I'll go to the LA Times. I'll go to Thrillist. I'll go to Food Beast, whatever. And then before you know it, like we no longer have that rep, and so people don't care as much anymore. So holding on to it as strongly as possible, I think, is how we not only capture our audience but continue to grow it.
2: And how do you how do you hold on to it, and how do you develop it, and how have you in your four years running, you know, that LA beat?
1: How has that matured? it's crazy. I mean, when I first started, when you're a freelance writer, like you're just kind of telling one story and leaving and, and it's all set up in advance. And I would go to a restaurant, I'd interview a chef for like LA Weekly six years ago. And then I'd come back that next week and the chef would have no idea who I was because I, w- I wasn't like a face. I wasn't like a person. I just was a guy who came to do a job and that chef did his job for me and then left. And so it became really important to me early on in my career at Eater to like start being at every restaurant as much as I could and put a business card in everybody's hand and be like, I know I like work at eater, but I'm also this guy with this name and it's important for you to remember me because again, I'm not anonymous. I have a dining budget. My job is to go be at restaurants and spend money. Like I tell people this all the time. My triangle is I want people to read the site and think that I do a good job and that I'm pretty prolific. I want people to see me in their restaurant spending money and being a nice dude. And then I want them in the back of their mind to be like, that dude's gonna find out my secret anyway. And if I can live in that triangle, they'll just tell me. I don't even have to do the hard work. I don't have to go out of my way to find out.
0: Well, that's crazy. How do you decide where you're gonna eat every day?
1: Uh, some of it is just based on like the regional specifics of where I need to be today. Like I live up near Highland Park. I'm in Orange County today. So I'll probably go if Keith is over at all flavors, say hi to him or do something like that. That's like neighborhood for Orange County. But then last night I was in Santa Monica and from like two 30 to 11 o'clock at night. So I'll probably just be at four different places like checking in, sitting at the bar. And I don't. I don't need to be anonymous, but it is nice to get a real feel for a restaurant, like how they're operating and see how they treat other people. Like if I'm just sitting at the bar like a nobody, because we do have some limited ability still to decide like what we are gonna talk about and what we aren't gonna talk about. So even though it's not my opinion, I am still like, okay, well, maybe we don't put that place on a map or maybe this person wants me to talk about their cool new menu and I say, no, we're not gonna do that because I've been to that restaurant and they have bad food and worse service. So like I am still out kind of scouting information all the time.
0: So it's pretty serendipitous. I kind of like where you're flowing during the day exactly
1: and I schedule some stuff out in advance but again like I don't I'm not out booking free meals places I never want to walk through the door and the chef goes oh there goes a hundred bucks because this guy's gonna you know (laughs) eat every burger on the menu like those days are behind me so I want to as much as possible like try to show my face in a positive way and spend that money in real time and, and so it means i just get to float around the city doing whatever whenever
0: see that is why it's the coolest freaking job <laughs> in LA I swear to god yeah. like we like, have different jobs food beast and yes. farley has completely different jobs but were was there ever a story like a food story that kind of scared you
1: yeah i mean this happens all the time right like i realize that that eater is different things to different people all the time some people only come for it for the maps some people come for it for the breaking news some people come for bigger larger feature stuff it's usually the featurey sort of stuff that can get you into trouble Mm. Uh, i wrote a story a few months ago about rick caruso who's this huge developer in los angeles he owns the grove like his his company is caruso limited and his company owns the grove and they do more (laughs) annual visitors than disneyland like there is is the most the most tourist traffic you could imagine on the west coast goes to the Grove more than anywhere else and it's like this nuts thing where you have to think about like once you're in his built environment he gets to decide like what retail and restaurant environments you're spending your money at and i think that that sort of stuff comes with a lot of power he's worth four and a half billion dollars so the short of it is like he opened this property called palisades village where he took that built environment like the grove and just made it real life it's like some stepford wivesy sort of shit where it's you can perfect yeah, quote unquote right and it, and it looks a certain way like you know the grove kind of looks like 1950s americana everywhere mm. like The truth is, the 1950s in America were good for exactly one group of people, and that's white men. Mm -hmm. Like, What are you saying to people who spent their tax monies in part to help build that public sidewalk in Pacific Palisades— Are you telling them, hey, don't come to my property because it doesn't look like it's for you or none of the businesses are owned by people of color? Like, I think that stuff matters in a city as diverse as Los Angeles. We're 22% white city. Having nine restaurants at Pacific Palisades, all of them owned by white people, including the sushi restaurant, is an extremely bad look. So getting Rick Caruso in the room and being like, hey, have you ever thought about this? And him being like, no, I haven't because I'm a huge billionaire is (laughs) is terrifying, right? Because that guy has an outsized ability to be a powerful force in the city. I mean, he's literally on the USC board of trustees. He's the president. Like when Lori Laughlin's daughter got busted for they spent <laughs> $500,000 and she had to fly back to like stand trial. She flew back from being on Rick Caruso's yacht. Like that's the dude that you're going to look him in the face and be like, Hey, I think you're bad at what you do. And maybe a little racist because of how rich you are. Like, that's
0: a hard thing to do. What's well, kind of like that Peter Thiel situation with Gawker? Like, does that yeah. cross your mind when you're. So, how do you set up that interview? Are you like, yo, I want to cover your new development? And so, and then do you you get him once he's in the room you start asking him the hard questions or
1: yeah i mean i I try to be as honest as possible and and treat people with respect as much as i can and i told those people like hey we have questions about the development side of this and i'd been pushing to try to get rick in the room for a while i didn't go out of my way to be like i'm going to ask him specifically why there are no people of color who own any of the restaurants here but i wasn't obfuscating completely the notion that like i'm going to have some Serious questions to ask him about this sort of thing and it was one 20 minute interview after we had walked the property together and He was nice at the beginning and I was nice at the beginning and then you just sort of let the interview roll from there Like you guys do this with your podcast It starts out nice and friendly, but you've got to ask some of the harder questions at some point point. And so if I know it's going to get to the end and I feel like I can actually get him to answer a question like, and I'm not afraid of him cutting the interview short because I've got most of what I need, then I'll just start laying in because whatever, he's never going to be in a room with me again. What's my worst case scenario? He goes like, I'm out of here. Cool. It still makes for a good story.
0: Yeah. That's scary though. Billionaires, it is scary. billionaires are genuinely scary. Peter yeah. Thiel is a scary person who yes. did not like a story <laughs> and essentially ended a media organization.
1: Yeah, that is that is very real. I've been sued several times, like in my job at Eater, and it comes from people who are usually trying to get me to release information about how I got info on something that was bad for them. Hey, this business closed, and you know, we've got record of the meeting behind closed doors about like why it closed and somebody pulling out their money, and people don't want that stuff public because there's there's... There's a lot of ego involved. There's a lot of cash involved. But my job is to build sources like any other crazy journalist and go through that process of protecting those secrets so that I can make sure to like keep my job afloat and keep those people safe.
2: What's that line for you when you know that a story is going going to piss somebody off? And that line in the sense of is that also a potential future source that's going to be that you're going to want to talk about on your beat? um and you know recently on a podcast you talked about a a restaurant soft opening that you weren't exactly invited to kind of found your way in yeah. got the menu got got your photos you know publish something on eater and then get some scathing e- emails from a restaurant tour. <laughs> yeah. and i completely get that that's your job right yeah. but at the same time i could also see whatever bridge existed with that source is now burnt to the ground
1: yeah. so
0: you'll tell me ha- about this I sorry I have no idea about this story uh, I'll, I'll really the whole story so there,
1: it's a, a bar out of New York City called Apple Tech that was coming to uh, Los Angeles right down by the LA River where major Domo is and we'd had a lot of productive conversations with Chris the owner when he was still in New York and it was getting ready to open and like my whole thing with Eater is we're not one of these publications that tells one story one time and leaves like why well, have the ability to keep the conversation going I want to talk when you've got an announcement to make that you're coming to Los Angeles, then when you've got a space, then when you're close to opening, when you have an opening date, we take photos, we talk about you ten years later when, you know, somebody has a slip and fall accident and sues you for ten million dollars. Like I wanna talk about all of <laughs> right. it. And so we were having a lot of productive conversations and then we got to the point where it was getting ready to open. I kept hearing that it was opening and this guy wouldn't answer my emails, wouldn't answer my phone calls. And I was like, I started sending emails like, look, man, I want to do this the right way, but I have an obligation to my readers. The moment somebody, you open the door and exchange cash for food, you're an operating business, full stop. And anybody who walks through that door, it can be a Yelp, a leader. It could be somebody from a competing media organization. They're all trying to do the exact same thing that I'm doing. So my job is to deliver that information to our readers so that they keep coming to eater. So, So sure enough, they were having like a friends and family night and I parked my car and I walked up to the guy at the front door. He's like, you live in the neighborhood? And I'm like, well, I'm pretty close. (laughs) He's like, all right, you can go in. And I just shot a bunch of iPhone photos, copped a menu, like took it back to my house, scanned it and ran it the next morning. Like, I sorry, man, I tried to give you every opportunity to do this right. And his email to me was like, how dare you? Like... Uh, I was saying, everybody at the bar told me they were going to open the next day. He's like, I'm not going to open today just to spite you so that your news is wrong. And I'm like, if you want to lose money, man, go ahead. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It was, it was true when everybody at the bar told me. And he's like, you need me way more than I need you. And like, you're a virus and all this stuff. And sure enough, a month later, he's like, hey, we got off on the wrong foot. Because <laughs> that's it. Like, there's so much stuff to talk about in Los Angeles right now. If you are some dinky bar halfway under a bridge next to the river, it doesn't matter how good your product is. If, if we're going to do $4 million page views this month or more like if if people don't know you exist they're not gonna come spend their money
0: did that friends and family event was money being transacted yeah. like was it open? it was open for business yeah yeah I mean oh, people cool. could
1: people could walk in and, and absolutely trade cash for a drink like it was some of the neighborhood it was some people that like they knew that they had invited in but again the moment you let me through that door that's it we the same thing happened there's a food hall next to where the LAFC stadium is near downtown and they kept like pushing off they wouldn't even tell us all the vendors that were going at it I'm like guys come on we've been doing this too long can't we just like can't I just sit on my couch and write this story but, no they <laughs> want to make it hard so I'm on like every neighborhood Facebook group you could imagine, like nobody knows more quickly about what's going in in their neighborhood from a restaurant perspective than some old lady on a Facebook group,
0: (laughs) (laughs) like seriously. And I will,
1: I'll just scan that stuff. And sure enough, somebody like, for that South LA neighborhood was was like, hey, they're doing like a super soft neighborhood only preview thing, if you can prove that you live in the neighborhood, they'll give you a $25 gift card, you can go into the food hall and spend it at all the vendors. And this is after me trying to get in, like no we're not gonna do it and as soon as I saw that I made a fake email account <laughs> I pulled an address from a street that was nearby sent him an email they sent me a $25 gift card and I walked through the front door and it took me about 15 steps before somebody that I knew that was in the building like came up to me and was like Farley what are you doing here and I was like "Hey, you sent me an email <laughs> like, <laughs> but there's 75 other people in there who all have camera phones who all want to post the same information that I do whether they're a journalist or some random who happens to live in the neighborhood and, and if I'm not beating the randoms I'm truly bad at my job so I have to figure out how to get creative.
0: Roy Choi called you a vulture. <laughs> he did on Twitter. This was like a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah, like, he did. So I read the story that you wrote. You basically wrote that one of his restaurants, Chego, had closed. Yeah, it's it it's closed. closing at the end of April. Yeah, right. And so the narrative of why Roy Choi was pissed was he said, "Well, you led with it being closed as opposed to leading with its quote unquote moving." Sure. Which is that true? So he wants to move the restaurant,
1: right? If they had a particular address that they were going to move that restaurant into, we probably would have put in the headline that it was moving. But right now, Roy Choi has an idea that at some point down the line, he will reopen Chago in an undisclosed location. That doesn't mean you're moving. And even if it did mean you're moving, it's still accurate to say that the Chinatown location of Chago, the only location that exists, is closing. And, like, I understand people, to quote you, can feel some type of way about what that means. But the truth is, like... My job is to be as honest with our readers as possible. And on May 3rd, if somebody tries to walk into the Far East Plaza and eat at Chago and they see that it's locked up and they can't get a rice bowl anymore, it means the restaurant's closed, Roy. I don't know what else to tell you.
0: How do you feel when you're about to publish that article? Because mm-hmm. let me put it out there. I agree with you. I think that the headline makes sense. Yeah. I think the information in that article is extremely accurate. And there was no other presented information for you to go off of either.
1: And in the article, it's all about how Roy Choi changed the landscape of Chinatown. And like the one thing I didn't put in the story because it wouldn't make sense is like, I had Kogi barbecue at my wedding. Like, (laughs) I love Roy Choi's food and what he's done for the city. But to say that he's like immune from closing a restaurant is just nonsensical.
0: Yeah. Do you, as you publish that, you as a human, you as a person, do you see. Roy potentially responding to that, knowing Roy Choi, knowing how he's he's a visceral dude. He know he's passionate, extremely yeah. passionate, extremely outspoken. Do you, as you publish that, you're like, Roy's probably gonna see this.
1: I mean, I know he's going to see it. Whether or not he responds is a different story altogether. So, like, Roy Choi does not talk to us and hasn't liked us. It's the first time he's ever called me a vulture, but (laughs) he's not been pro-eater for a long time. And this a version of this has happened before. Like, the way that we found out about Chago closing is because he put it on Instagram. And again, like... That's it. You haven't. You have an opportunity to come to me first, and we can work out a way to like tell that story that most benefits everybody. But once it's on Instagram, you've got however many thousands of followers you have. My job is then to tell our story with the accurate headline and run it as quickly as possible. So like, I'm not reaching out to Roy because he's put everything he wants to say on the matter on the Eat Chago Instagram page, but. Previously, when he was out at the Line Hotel, and they like switched all the concepts in Koreatown, like I had that information probably four or five months before, and I would just every three weeks probably email Roy's team, never expecting a response back. Hey, man, like let's talk about this. You're leaving all these projects in a neighborhood that matters to you. I want you to have your voice, and he didn't want to do it, so. I don't want to tell you you don't get to have it both ways i had that story locked and loaded and ready at the line hotel like sitting on background in a drafts folder waiting for the day that somebody else would roy himself or whoever drop the news and then i literally was driving in my car twitter's like this little blurb popped up and i was like oh rochoy ran that he's leaving the line and i pulled over and within 60 seconds sent my story so like that's what you've got to do. I want to play ball with people as much as possible, but I also have an obligation.
2: What prevents you in that situation where you kind of have a, a story lined up like that? Um, I don't know if it was c- completely like, fact-checked, or what What stops it from being published and waiting for that tweet from Roy, for example?
1: So it, it's a tricky situation. I mean, in some senses, we have a lot to think about. So. A recent example, a woman named Jessica Largi, really, really um, prominent chef from Enresa, Michelin starred, one of the youngest James Beard Award winners ever. She just left her post at this restaurant called Simone that she opened. The Simone took like three years to open in the Arts District and it had a pretty rocky beginning and then just got eviscerated by the L.A. Times in a new um, a new review. And like she just it wasn't going well, like, and she needed something needed to give. And so the owners and her kind of, I, I came to an understanding about her leaving the restaurant, but I had that information five or six days before the problem is like one, I, it's one thing to get information two, It's another thing to confirm that information. And so you've got to be really delicate about who you're confirming with it. So you're not tipping off people. And in, in her case, like there's NDAs, there's a lot of money that gets involved. And I'm, I'm trying to be first to news, but I'm also not trying to take like more than a million dollars out of somebody's pocket. And so in that sense, like I think we have an obligation to at least think proactively. Sometimes we run stories that we can confirm from people who don't want to talk to us. And sometimes I'm happy to wait until that person talks to us or just find some middle ground in between. Everything is unique, but the most important things are that we are accurate and that we are first.
2: There's a there's a contemporary strategy and at least in digital journalism that if you can write something jarring and then tag that person in a tweet or put them in a headline and get them to respond, that's like still good for the article or the publication because it gets exposure. Is that something that you ever think about? Um, And again, I think, I don't think it's something at food beast, we enact on a regular basis, but we also are aware that putting someone in a headline, will make it more attractive to so yeah. to a certain type of reader people will click on it for mm-hmm. example and in the Roy Choi situation for us at Food Beast is you know he doesn't or at least in in 2013 he didn't like Food Beast either when I when I wrote about how the food truck industry was dying and it was at the same time where we're also trying to partner with Kogi for an event and he gets pissed and tweets out the article and Gets pissed at me and things like that. So we know it's a pretty, he's a pretty visceral guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, like he also links to your article in a tweet, right? right. So it's, <laughs> right, one, it's right. one of those things where, yeah. I'm not saying you did that strategically, sure. but it's one of those things that does... Uplift a story at least from an exposure perspective.
1: Yeah, I think that like we have a whole SEO and and, and marketing team that like handles headlines and all that stuff out of New York and, and they for bigger stories are Running that shit through whatever algorithms they've got to try to maximize its potential I don't try to go out of my way to go negative. I don't try to go out of my way to be sensational I do try to contextualize all the time like Every single day I run into people that have no idea what Eater is. And so I used to take that as like a huge ego hit and be like, man, come on, I'm working too hard. Like whatever. (laughs) But the truth is like, Good good for them. They're obviously consuming information in some way. And just because they haven't found eater doesn't mean they never will. So what can I do in the future to be in front of them? And I, I think a lot of the way you do that is by contextualizing, like, okay, Roy Choi's restaurant is closing in Chago and Chago is closing in Chinatown. Do people know Chago? No, maybe. I don't know. Do they know Roy Choi? Definitely. Do they know Chinatown and what's been happening there in Chinatown? Probably. So if I can put at least two or three of those things into a headline and make it compelling enough, then great. Whether or not Roy Choi it out and calls me a vulture is sort of besides the point like I want it to be accurate and still grabbable in the moment because I there's no guarantee that Roy Troy' is going to give me what I want even if that's what I was looking for
0: well the quote-unquote if you had to use moving in the headline it would be a total PR fluff yeah and, sense, and, and because and, you don't have the information of where it's going and, right it's not accurate like full stop Your restaurant
1: in Chinatown is closing. And I know that that sucks. And I know that you, Roy especially, is coming off a tough year where like local also went away and he had his biggest opening ever, but it was in Vegas. Like I don't, if I'm a small business owner, I think that sucks to have a job that is in the public space. Like I wouldn't want to be a restaurant owner in any way, especially if guys like me are sniffing around my places all the time. (laughs) But the truth is like you have an obligation to deliver to your readers the most factual information. And when that guy shows up on May 3rd because he wants a rice bowl and it doesn't exist, he's not going to think that like oh Roy Troy probably moved I just don't know where he's going to be like man this place is it's closed, closed. <laughs> and that sucks
0: <laughs> are there small mom and pa restaurants that are just cr- cracking good food that don't want someone like Farley in there for whatever reason and then how do you how do you deal with that
1: yeah, I think so. I try to be respectful if it's, if we're just going to talk in depth about one place and why it's unique or why it matters. I try really hard to be respectful to those people. Uh, step one is always going in, having the food. Uh, if I like the food, if I think the story is compelling, I'll go back and talk to them about like what me writing a story might look like and how that can change their business model. But uh, the, the only way I think that we would really ever hear a no from somebody is if they had like an issue with like immigration or had an issue with like back taxes that they owed or like, you know, if they had a lawsuit on them or something like that. And we, we try to be respectful as much as possible. And and we've, We've had some pretty serious stuff too, people who have gotten uh, restraining orders against fellow chefs for uh, things like abuse. And the victim side of that, those people have come to us and said, look, this has an equal chance of ruining my career, and it's on the public record, but it's also really scary for me. And so can you please not run that? And we can choose whether or not to abide by that stuff. So you've got to take it like the lighthearted side with the serious stuff too. And we're making those kind of decisions every day.
2: And to provide context on that, I mean you're publishing four, five, six stories a day, yeah. asking someone or showing up to a mom and pop restaurant to provide the context of this is what a story could do for you is time that you may or may not have. Yeah. So I think that's, I don't know, for me that says a lot that you can even consider those types of things when you're also trying to be the first to everything, Yeah. have stories on the back burner, you're meandering around neighborhoods constantly. To be able to even have that conversation, I think is one really important for journalism, mm-hmm. but two, I think increasingly rare in quote unquote journalism. Uh, and so I don't know, I'm really stoked to hear oh, you do that. Thanks,
1: man. I mean, we we were the first people to write about Keith Garrett at all flavor no grease And that guy is a great example of when it can go right and he knew exactly who he was and he's had that energy since day one And like he was not bothered at all by me being on hundred and eighth and asking too many questions and coming back with a camera Like he wanted that thing. He already had the energy. He just needed the followers And so that's the stuff that I love helping a person who's already doing something cool to reach a wider audience Those are my
0: best days what are your conversations with restaurant owners as you're about to cover them? You know it's going to be pretty glowing. Yeah. Do you, how do you teeter their expectations too? Because we've talked about this before, like a write-up can really help. Totally. But it also, it it shouldn't be defining of the restaurant or the concept or whatever it may be. What kind of conversations are you having? Like, yo, Get ready for a shit ton of people to come. Well,
2: especially because the restaurateur, as soon as they get a glimmer of like, oh, I'm going to get covered. Right. Also start treating this theoretical piece as like the glory day. Right. Right. And I think that's something that's really dangerous because the article could run and it could engage well and it could quote unquote go viral and all Mm -hmm. the words that they use. But it also could just be a normal article on our site and not change a ton, but still have relevance and add to the cultural fabric and history of that neighborhood. So I'm curious how you balance that yeah. conversation when, to me, I think anytime. Someone knows that Food Beast is doing video coverage or editorial coverage. They're also meeting this new expectation of, like, this is going to be everything that my, right. of my hopes and dreams. Yeah. You I'll know, never have to pay for another marketing material <laughs> in my life because
1: <laughs> Food uh, Beast came once. Exactly. No, that's that's a, a real challenge, and I, I try to be super honest with people up top. Like, you take up Burgers Never Say Die like when he's cooking in his backyard. It's like... Yo, I want to make sure that you think you're prepared for, like, an increased volume of people coming. Because, like, I can get a sense now, like, a a delicious, good-looking burger in a backyard street food story, like, is going to do well on our site. But I can't tell him that it's going to be two-and-a-half-hour lines or that, like, literally the week they got shut down, Tyler, the creator, was there with Robert Pattinson and a McLaren. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's when you know it's gone too crazy. Yeah. But like I can't guarantee that's ever going to happen. So instead I just try to be like it could happen and you need to be prepared because I've seen it happen before. But I was at a restaurant last night in Santa Monica and everyone was very nice to me and whatever. The truth is, that's the fourth time I've been to that restaurant and it's been open for four years. So I'm not putting money in their pocket every single day in a real way. I, again, have some limited ability to cover a place, but every other table was packed with people that are just normal folks that want to come in and have a dinner. And those people matter probably more than I do on the day-to-day bottom line basis. So you can blow up places as much as possible, but if the operational instincts aren't there, if the food's not there, they're going to fail no matter what.
0: You ever run into shelving a story because you want to keep that place to yourself? <laughs> no, man. Never? <laughs> really, honestly, don't. Like People
1: ask me all the time, what's your favorite restaurant? I'm like, I don't think of it that way. Like, I... He, he, here's I've said this before but this is the the truest I can be when I was doing comedy stuff I was like, okay, what do I want to do I want to work in a writer's room or something like that and It's like okay, what do I really really honestly want what I want is for uh, I want to have a voice I want for people to uh, see my thing out in the world I want people people to think that I'm like a nice guy and give me positive feedback and I want to like be treated at some level of important probably like those are all things that I got from trying to be a a comedy writer and I get all the exact same stuff from trying to be a food writer. I get to put stuff out that people respond to positively and I get to walk around self-important some days on my most egotistical days. And so like, I could be the happiest snow shoveler in Madison, Wisconsin, as long as I was getting those three things fulfilled. So whether or not like the restaurant is any good or it's my favorite place or I want to keep it to myself, I don't think of it in those terms. Like if the story's good and, I, and they're ready for it and I want more people to know, let's do it. Like. I don't go see Keith Garrett from All Flavor anymore because he's got how many thousands of people waiting for his truck in Pomona?
0: Like, you you don't see that's a problem? Like, for you personally, for your own, like, I want that good ass (laughs) quesadilla. Like, I run into that shit all the time. Right. Someone's like, yo, go to this restaurant. I go, I love it. There might not be a ton of people in there. And then I have this like moral compass thing. Like, okay, I could try to help this business by telling more people about it, or I could keep this place to myself, go there, never have to suffer through a line. Cause hate lines yeah. and I just want my tacos <laughs> and, but you run the risk. Could this place go out of business if right. not enough people come? So that's the, yeah. the balance. So
1: I, I, I will be completely honest with you. I'm always on the side of the operator. Make that money. Like mm-hmm. if you don't see me for a while, that's okay. I don't go and wait in the line at Howland Ray's and they know who I am. And they're very nice. And I probably written about Howland Ray's 45 times. I'm glad they've got two and a half hour waits, and I'm glad I don't ever eat there just because I don't want them to not exist at all instead.
0: Yo, I like that. You want to talk about Michelin? Because I have a question.
2: Yeah. Well, why don't you
0: just ask your question? But let's definitely talk Michelin. Okay. It's Michelin. It's Michelin related. Run it. Okay. So I don't know dick about the Michelin guide. <laughs> 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 like, is it because I'm from Southern California and we just haven't had one? I hear I hear about it, right? Like, I'm not naive to the gravity of being on a Michelin guide. Right. I personally don't care a ton. Yeah. But I know how important it is to a large sleuth of people. Why, can you just give us a crash course in what the Michelin Guide even is? Yes. So at its, Way,
1: way, way, way back beginnings. Michelin Guide was literally started by the tire company as a way to sell tires, and they put out these little guides for restaurants on places that were like worth a detour, or worth a special trip. And so they had all these like different star ratings, and it was meant to sell tires and get people out to good restaurants. It very quickly morphed into something else, and now is a global phenomenon, for better or worse, that is often paid for by tourism boards of specific states or countries. So like the tourism board of California is paying the Michelin Guide seven hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is to. Like, come put a guide back in California because it's good for tourism. But the truth is, more to your point, you're right the vast majority of people in the America, let alone the world, uh, don't know what Michelin is or don't care and will never eat at a Michelin starred restaurant in their life. This goes back to what I said at the very beginning, like we have an obligation to cover restaurants of all scopes and sizes. I do think that it's good for tourism. It's good for bucks to come, especially if they're doing all of California. They'll probably have a couple of Michelin guy places in San Diego County and Orange County, a bunch in Los Angeles. So like, that's cool. And in restaurants who need a sense of validation especially if they're doing really high-end food don't have a lot of outlets to get that otherwise i mean in the six to eight months after jonathan gold passed away there were no food critics really in los angeles doing weekly coverage so if you're a guy like dave baron at dialogue or somni or all these like super high-end restaurants it's like where do you go you put up this food that matters to you and nobody's there to tell you hey good job like everybody wants to hear a good job so i don't blame the michelin guide for coming to los angeles at all but i will say if they don't put a San Gabriel Valley restaurant on there if they don't put a taco truck on there and give one of these places that are everyday Dining options a star people like you are just gonna continue to laugh it off and rightfully so like it's gonna be Non-consequential to so many people.
0: Why hasn't it been in Southern California? So
1: it was it was for two years okay. 2008 to 2010 um, just in Los Angeles and then they had San Francisco as well But it was the start of the downturn. They couldn't get somebody to the economic downturn They couldn't get somebody to like keep paying for it. And so mm. they pulled out but they they fucking burn the road behind them. And they were like, Los Angeles just isn't ready. It's not like a foodie town. Like they were like, lock the door and throw their grenades through the window. And so I think that they really are going to have to eat their words a lot if they want to come back and do it the right way in Los Angeles. And the truth is they probably won't.
0: Why do you say that? Just because they
1: are too up in their heads about like being this fine dining bastion that a three Michelin-starred restaurant can only mean this type of look, this type of price point, and in some ways this type of,
0: of chef or cuisine. So from what you know, what makes, so there's a one star, two star, three star Michelin-star restaurant? Yep, and Michelin. then they
1: have um, these things called bib gourmands which are like, thanks for playing. <laughs>
0: <This kind laughs> um, yeah. Constellation prize? It, yeah.
1: So uh, it's almost exclusively white male chefs. It's almost exclusively European fine dining. You know, at the one-star level, you get into places that are a little more casual, um, but it, it looks a lot like for Los Angeles, like what Providence looks like. Really delicious food that is very expensive to make and comes with some high-minded ethos. You know, there's not a ton of
0: burger and taco places on the list. So what's a prerequisite, say, for a one-star? Uh, I, I, what are people looking for? I know you're not. No, doing no, no. It, so I, I, my what point, you know.
1: So, I, as far as I know, it would be more like in the old guidebooks. It's like this is this is a good meal to have in your neighborhood. Like it's worth checking out. Um, so I think that like a father's office, like a place like wow. that, that's like can be pretty everyday might be considered for a one star and then once you get into the twos it's like this place is worth a detour it's got to be of a certain um like service quality it's got to be of a certain price point it's got to be like very well done high high-flutin food and then three is like the biggest modern gastronomy restaurants in the world like the 11 madison parks and nomas and things like that
0: so price definitely factors in so you
1: so they say that it's only what's on the plate I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you could get away from not talking about price or the service or the wine or any of that sort of stuff. Like, I'm sure it all matters.
2: Are you excited for it to come back to California and therefore Los Angeles or is, is part of you, like, does part of you not care because we've yeah. survived without it? We have, you know, that we have a great dining scene, you know, that we're not defined by the Michelin guide. So yeah what's your emotion toward that announcement
1: i'm very excited to make fun of it (laughs) (laughs) no i mean uh i i hope that they do it right because i think there are a ton of really deserving chefs like the joseph centennos of the world who really really putting a michelin star feather in their cap is going to mean a lot to their career just like a writer winning a james beard or whatever the case may be but The truth is that we have an obligation as a city to think about every type of dining level, and most people aren't eating that way. So I don't really think it's going to appreciably change the way that Los Angeles eats. It might bring in more high-end tourists who want to come try all those restaurants, and you see it now like – we're nine years away from getting the olympics and like what that's going to do for the city of los angeles from a development perspective from a restaurant perspective we're already starting to see an even greater influx and we have for the past five or ten years of of well-heeled tourists coming to los angeles looking to spend money so I applaud it to come back. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm glad they're doing all California because there's a couple of in-between places, whether it's La out in the desert or Addison in North San Diego County, that are really beautiful restaurants that wouldn't have an avenue to be talked about really otherwise. But I don't think it's going to matter that much. And the day the list drops in June, I'm just going to probably be like, oh, Okay. No, I'm gonna go get a quesadilla, like, because that's how I really want to eat anyway, and most people do too.
0: We should do a live stream that day where we're just like. (laughs) It's in Huntington Beach, like you can go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if
1: if you can get a Food Beast Media pass, but we'll try because they probably won't let you guys in. You should make a. (laughs) You should do what I did and make a fake email address. (laughs) At
2: Buzzfeed, anyways. Uh, Yeah. um, Does sorry, Eli? Does James Beard matter more than Michelin for Los Angeles?
1: uh, Not to the average diner. Most the majority of people don't have any idea. I I helped out with this documentary that Evan Funky did about his restaurant opening in Venice, and uh, the John and Vinny guys are in the documentary. And they it's literally they recorded in the year uh, that they won their James Beard, and they're like, we had one of our most down years of the past decade. Like nobody cares about the James Beard Foundation awards in Los Angeles. Writers care, like emotionally, we sort of care. And if you get that individual award, like John Yao from Cato is up for winning Rising Star Chef, like that guy's 26 years old and is doing some of the best fine-ish dining Taiwanese food you're ever going to find. Like, I'll be super hyped for that guy. And he gets to put that like, just like Michelin as a feather in his cap. But everyday diners, absolutely not. Most people have no idea.
0: If there's a Michelin critic listening right now, what advice could you give him or her about coming to LA and properly representing our city? Because LA has such a different function for for food, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we're in our cars, there's food trucks, there's restaurants built out of old mechanic workshops. Like <laughs> yeah. it's badass. And yeah. it's, it's kind of hard yeah. to, to Pigeon capture. Yeah. So what advice can we give them coming in? Like, Hey, maybe be on the lookout for this. And what would make you happy if these things showed up as a three Michelin star, two Michelin star, whatever, like what advice could we give them to hopefully do it proper?
1: I, th- I think the A1 top of the list is like, you got to take this city as it comes. Like, Glendale is so different than Venice is so different than Frogtown and Silver Lake and downtown and the arts district. so like you've got to be willing to meet these places where they're at and understand and respect that like obviously what they're doing is working for the average diner Salazar and Frogtown is busy every day. yeah mini kebab and Glendale is busy every day Correct. One, because it's got two and a half tables but like <laughs> also because the food is delicious so like I don't you know if they if they can put a place like a mini kebab on the map in some way and from a Michelin level, it'll show me and a lot of other people that they're serious about getting the city right in the way that they weren't last time.
2: So Eli, in my opinion, the fact that the tourism board of California spent 600, 700 grand to bring a Michelin guide to California. That's one of the smartest marketing decisions that I think I've ever Mm -hmm. seen a tourism board do. And this is coming from someone I don't read the Michelin Guide. I don't use the Michelin Guide, but I also think like a six or seven hundred thousand investment, especially Farley, you just mentioned the Olympics coming to LA, mm-hmm. could lead over time to like fifty, a hundred million dollars in tourism spending from flights, hotels, the restaurants on this list, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I'm curious if you guys feel some type of way about it, quote unquote, being bought and or like. Do you think do you agree with me that it's a good marketing decision and ultimately benefits the economy of California? I like the decision because I think more people are going to discover Los Angeles and California.
0: But I'm curious about how you guys feel about I it. I think 700 is minuscule. Yeah. Like we all know what ad budgets look like. Right. So to to get the Michelin guide to finally recognize California to the people who do give a shit about it, it's such a micro investment for what I do believe will be Tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investment back. Like there's a lot of people that travel to Southern California to go to Disneyland, LA, and they don't give a fuck about eater. They don't give a fuck about Food Beast. Yeah. Right? It's a family of four, maybe from France. Like, you know what? We're going to look at the uh this is a terrible French accent.
2: <laughs> I was like, Oh, are they Lebanese friends?
0: Oh. <laughs> 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 like, oh we oui, we oui. uh we have a day off from Disneyland. We go to the Michelin guide, and we, right? So, like that alone is dope. And yeah. so, for the for the state of California, for Southern California, I th- I think it's way more. And what's seven hundred grand? To the Travel Bureau of California, one of the biggest. Tra- I think it's one of the biggest, if not the yeah. biggest, in the the country. So that's a splash in the bucket, and I don't think anyone is going to be talking about it being bought, other than us three and other media nerds.
1: Yeah, like, tr- it's, the- it's super intra-media. Like most people would not care, and I would say like the Tourism Board of California has no need to be on the up and up when it comes to like media ethics, the moment that the like Michelin <laughs> guide comes to them and is like, hey, we're willing to let you give us seven hundred thousand dollars, I'd be like, write the <laughs> write the big check. Like, of course. And especially for places like Sacramento, places like San Diego that would never get a Michelin Guide on their own because there just aren't enough places. There's not enough advertising to warrant it. Like to go out of your way to make it an intra-California list, to suck the San Francisco list, which has continued to exist, back into that whole thing and make it about the whole state. That is a huge win for them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have any problems with that at all. I do in a similar vein, though, I wanted to ask you guys like. You guys obviously work with restaurants on a paid capacity to go in and create content for them, but you're also talking about restaurants in a non-paid capacity because you like them or you think they're interesting. How do you guys balance that inside these four walls?
2: It's a good question. I think the, the, it's a fucking great the, the question. main <laughs> the main line of- <laughs> I turned to bear for a second. The main delineation for us is actually Eli and myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm mostly on the business side. This, the catch-up is one of the things that I, I contribute toward. But for the most part, on the branded side, it's coming through my desk. And then if it's coming through the editorial side, it's going through his. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean he doesn't have a purview of what's happening on my desk. And I don't ha- understand what's happening off his. Right. But that's our delineation. If like Eli's really interested in your place... And or our managing editor, reach or our writers are in the room. It kind of goes up that pole. Mm-hmm. And then if you're looking to partner with us,
0: it's, it's it goes to the business side. So kind of like your day, it is a bit serendipitous on yeah. the on the editorial side. Like we just, we get we take pitches. We're open to those. Mm-hmm. We're also open to eating out and just finding out what's cool. We're not in the business of taking money from small business. Right. Like we're not in the like we don't run branded campaigns with small restaurants. Like right. that's not our there's there's super high expectations that will never get met mm-hmm. from those. Um, so that's kind of how we split split that side of the business. Um, but that's that's kind of, we're just going after what we think our audience will feel is cool and right. fun and good looking and tasty. And that's how that's how we decide what to write about on the editorial side. Um, but that's why I think it's uber important that someone like Eater exists. And I think that's what I like about the Michelin guide despite not using it or caring is I think media is in a weird tough spot where there's not enough food journalists out there yeah. right like I think that's what makes you so special is that you're you're out there doing the job that frankly there should be more of but well and there used to be more of there, used there to be more. and there
2: used to be like 15 of you in Los Angeles yeah. uh, from various magazines and publications competing with each other and far I don't know anyone that's doing your job outside of maybe the other people that work at Eater but like day in, day out, like trying to cover the beat of restaurants, I can't name a, another publication that is even attempting to try to do it because to do so also means you either have bureaus or you're targeting certain cities or you just fully
0: immerse yourself in a single city. Right. And the volume and clarity that you guys do it too, right? Like So like LA Times will have a writer. It'll have, you know, other other publications will have a writer. But for you guys to have a team that covers and, Scours LA. That's huge. That's yeah. huge. For for whatever reason, like the LA Times did not publish in their food
1: section a new story yesterday. And I'm like, I'm gonna do five today by myself, and I'm not even the only writer. Like, I understand how dumb I am. I should not have that much power. Like <laughs> and before they started hiring like post Jonathan Gold, before they started making all their new hires, there was a time when it was maybe four people in Los Angeles making full time money writing about restaurants. And I was one of them like, that's crazy. Just as an Angelino, I know that there are a ton of neighborhoods and stories that I'm not naturally going to be reaching. And I think it is important that we continue to tell those stories. So like, technically, our coverage area goes down to Orange County, I'm not here that often, maybe once a month, twice a month. And so a lot of the things I'm doing are going to be pretty spotty. And I'm not at all taking a lead in trying to tell those types of stories. Like you guys are really owning that shit in Orange County. And so I look to you guys, all the time to be like what's cool what do you guys think is interesting down here and then i'll go in and eat off that so we need that sort of stuff those voices large and small in a lot of pockets in a lot of areas in southern california and frankly all over america
0: yeah it's just tough and that's why i like the michelin so our our focus and our editorial lens isn't about orange county happens to be where our office is based so some of those leads are a little easier than say something in an area where we're a little less underrepresented but That's where like the Michelin Guide, basically that money, from my understanding, that 700 grand or whatever, is to fund these critics Mm -hmm. to come in and hopefully be as unbiased as possible. And find restaurants that should make this list where, you know, Orange County media, L.A. media might not have that kind of funding dedicated to finding food.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really, really hard. Like Bill Addison, the current new one of the two critics for the LA Times, used to work at Eater for like four and a half years. And he was our national dining critic. He would spend 200 to 250 days a year on the road, flying to cities, renting cars, eating out food. I mean, the budget alone for that is ginormous. Normous. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a gig that we're even going to do again. Like it just doesn't exist anymore. And so I think that you've got to really think about making the money work. And that's why I don't. I don't blame sites like food beast for having an editorial side and having an advertising side. And I don't think you guys blur the lines that, that strongly, but like you got to make money somehow. I mean, how many people work for your company? 20. Like that's crazy. Yeah. You guys are responsible for like people, their livelihoods. Whether or not they're going to pay their fucking rent and like all that sort of very real stuff and that's not even getting into the small business side of how you can help people on that world like I think it is a massively important thing in an in, in age where it is so easy to just pay for Instagram ads mm-hmm. to be able to partner with people in a meaningful way or to tell stories in a meaningful way still has so much to offer for food.
0: So what's popping in LA right now?
1: oh Oh my god
0: God. I mean it's the most annoying question ever to (laughs) you yeah I
2: was as you said that I cringe because it's a it's a question that (laughs) I hate getting especially when there's uh, no no categories no context no background just like hey like, I'm gonna tell you this question and then I'm going to smugly wait for your answer. Right. Like, and also I just asked you out of the blue on in Instagram DM or like I don't even know you, just like give yeah, me yeah, give yeah. me your five, give me your ten. <laughs> or it's crazy when they ask like really long question, or they ask about a crazy number, like give me your top twenty. Yeah. And you're just like
1: <laughs> I'm like, I'm on a website. <laughs> Click the website, my guy. Or it's like people will be like, Man, I'm 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 love coming to Los Angeles. I want to know where I should eat. It's like, okay, are you staying in Santa Monica? Are you staying in downtown? Are you staying in like Irvine? You just don't want to tell me, like, <laughs> like what is really happening? So, uh, the two or three biggest things I think that are happening in Los Angeles right now: one is Major Domo in Bavel. Bavel is the follow up restaurant from the Bestia folks. Major Domo is David Chang's restaurant. They just today are now finalists for best new restaurant in America. They have been like the most talked about places of the past calendar year. So if you're at that level of dining, like those are the two hottest places to go, hardest to get into, also probably the most delicious. On the street food side, I think there's two big things happening right now. One is Tijuana style tacos, which are not even something that like you see all that prevalently in Tijuana. I mean, you do, but it's just become sort of pulled out of the zeitgeist of Tijuana and now made to be everything in L.A. And it's that sort of like carne asada, grilled, handmade corn tortilla. They usually smoke it over mesquite, that thick swipe of guacamole. People do queso tacos, or they, like, do that big wrap of crunchy queso inside, and it's, like, oh, yeah. so, so good. So it started maybe a few years ago with Tire Shop Taqueria, and now you've got, like, Pablitos that's cooking underneath the circus liquor clown sign in North Hollywood. <laughs> like they literally just are trying to do everything to play tacos. Alvinado in the Valley has got a hundred thousand Instagram followers. This is all they do. And then the other side of that is like Bedia tacos that have been popping mm. up everywhere. Quesadilla, Bedia, La Unica, Teddy's red tacos, like all these guys that are just, again, taking the modification of a thing that has a long history in Mexico, bringing it to the street and using Instagram and social media to elevate their presence. The guy from Teddy's red taco on the Univision uh, broadcast of the Super Bowl had a commercial. All in Spanish, and he like runs a taco truck off Slauson, like it's crazy. (laughs) Was
0: that the one that ESPN funded?
1: Yep, exactly. That's cool. And that guy opened two different brick and mortar locations. Like I think that that is massively underrepresented when we're talking about food in Los Angeles. Like the ability for folks to move the needle at a street food level or in their absolute neighborhoods. Like I had to go to Portland last weekend, and I took my Lyft driver was like we're talking about food, and she lives like down in Watts, and you know she's never heard any of these restaurants I'm talking about. And then she's like, "But all flavor, no grease." But Taco Mel, but Blue Kitchen, but Mr. Fries, man. Like she knows about all those spots because they're feeding her exactly where she's at, and it's for her community, and it's food that she's familiar with. It's the same way that Keith talked about, like local, not necessarily working if the food wasn't right for the people that were there. Don't call them foldies; call them tacos, and that sort of stuff is like that's like so cool, and it continues to grow in Los Angeles. Like I love, love, love that that's happening.
2: When when you're Farley, looking for fun and not Farley, uh senior editor at, mm-hmm. at eater what neighborhoods are you going to specifically and
1: and why uh if i'm really trying to like not have a night where i shake a bunch of hands like san gabriel valley south la places that have very interesting and really varied cuisines people don't necessarily, they think it's too far. It's going to be too complicated to figure out how to order or what to order. Like if you're just an open-minded person, like I was at the very beginning, like eating tacos off the street and not knowing what I was talking about. You just go in and walk around. If a place looks interesting, pop in. They probably got pictures on the wall. And if not, you look at every other table and see what they ordered and said, I'll have the same thing. Like you can do LA really cheap and really cool and really easy if you want to. And if if nothing else, I want to demystify that about Los Angeles. I want to talk about restaurants opening and closings and, you know, Mario Batali getting popped for sexual harassment or whatever. But I also want to talk about how to make the city more approachable to the average diner.
2: And is that, is that a somewhat of a new course for eater as a publication? Cause I'm not, I don't know the full history of eater, yeah. but eater has been around for long, time. Bo- like before food beast. Way. We yeah. would, we would look at eater as we started our blog. Um, that doesn't necessarily ring of the voice that I remember when I first came to Eater. Right. But I love that adaptation. Yeah. Is that something that L.A. is doing more so than other bureaus? And is that something because you're potentially spearheading it?
1: Yeah, that's it. Like, I, I had gotten my book proposal together to write my book that's all about the history of street food in Los Angeles like the same year that I came on board with Eater LA and so it was a real conversation at that time of like here's what I'm going to try to bring to the table I can do your volume work but I also want to be the dude who's talking about this sort of stuff because again it it drills down to the most basic thing like what do Angelinos actually eat and why does it make this city so fantastic and I think that as a direction for the site overall you're totally right it's not something we focused on historically but in Los Angeles in specific, it's become a real primary focus for us. And you see that like those stories do really well. It resonates with our readership. Everybody loves taco trucks. We're not only pulling in new people if we talk about a taco truck in their neighborhood, but also the guy who lives in Venice in a $1.2 million house still knows what a good taco is and he can try to go find it himself. Last year, our highest performing story for the entire year was the Avenue 26 Tacos street stand getting shut Shut down. down. Mm -hmm. And I happen to have a guy who I know that was in line while it was happening. He snapped some photos, sent him my my way tell me the whole story reach out to the police i had a story up the next morning and that was like late november early december and it did more volume in five weeks than any other story over the course of an entire year Why right. people care yeah that
0: that's insane that's I, fascinating. like yeah, yeah knowing that that story because i'm i'm assuming also a lot of that traffic did a lot of that traffic even come from outside l.a
1: I mean, a ton of it like we have huge conversations happening at a national level about what street food looks like and what Mexican food in America looks like. So a bunch of it did come. But it also is every banker who reads Eater wants to hear that story. And every person who lives in the neighborhood and every person who's worried about their taco truck on their corner in Boyle Heights and beyond also wants to read that story. Just it's so true to what Los Angeles is.
0: I get a lot of people asking me like, yo, where should I go in L.A.? I am not from L.A. I mm-hmm. haven't spent I don't spend a lot of time in L.A. So it's hard for me to kind of explain L.A. in a nutshell. And I know that's tough. But boroughs and neighborhoods are so vastly different. Mm-hmm. Are there like a? is there a good way that I can explain certain things to different people? Like here's what to expect out of Silver Lake. Imagine this was like a corny BuzzFeed list. Yeah. Where like, how to explain Food in different areas. Right. St. Yeah. Gabriel Valley. Like because it's all about. All right. Shit. If you're into like. Asian fusion like hit this area if you want like tacos well there's so many different kinds right, where do you right. go
1: so so this is I, I just had this crazy conversation not that long ago I got to go to Taipei and Taiwan and work on some stuff for a big piece that came out for our national office and we're taking the subways around and we've got some fixers and we're asking them like okay what's this neighborhood like what's this next neighborhood like and like what's it called and they would just be like oh well you know we just sort of name it after the metro stop or whatever and what I realized In Taiwan, they don't have this culture of this neighborhood means you are this type of person Mm. like that's such an Angelino construct It tells me something if you say you live in Venice or you live in downtown or you live in the valley And we use those as identifiers for not only personality traits, but the entire neighborhood overall So it is this huge multiple complex modifier for the entire city and all of its inhabitants I think anybody who's asking you that question just doesn't understand how big it is. And I, yes, it is a very hard thing to answer. We do a thing called like the eater's guide to Los Angeles that we update once a quarter. That is like essentially a massive one sheet that tries to answer this question. And we break down by neighborhoods, cuisine types, where to go specifically one great eating day, all that sort of stuff, just to kind of hand that to people. But there's, there's no real short answer. You know, I could list off a few now, like the San Gabriel Valley is a great place to go eat Asian food or something, but it wouldn't do any of those places justice. So I go back to what i said before like pick a couple neighborhoods that are near you find a couple spots that you've heard are good or you're willing to walk to to find out for yourself and just like eat the city that way
2: Mm. food halls are everywhere
1: especially in orange county
2: uh especially here i feel like there's a strategy with retail centers as they have a big box retailer leave or they have an outdated food court Mm -hmm. they just go Well, what's going to bring press and attention if we get 12 new food concepts in addition to all the restaurants that we have on property and we run it and it's going to be great and no one's no customer. There's going to be enough customers for everybody. I personally think we're in a bit of a restaurant bubble as well. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what you think about food halls and how many of them are going to succeed
1: uh not many i think long term food halls are just our modern way of identifying food courts like we just took them out of the mall and made different entrances but essentially it's the same thing what food when food halls are done right they are Stepping stones for small business entrepreneurs who don't have the money or the funding or the know-how to get into a particular brick-and-mortar and and they can Make a go of it themselves I think Keith being at fourth Street market and even groundhouse burgers even though that's pretty well funded like there's a way You can step up to prove that it's a manageable experience and then go on and have a lot of success elsewhere But the everyday like I'm gonna make a quick buck by putting in 12 places. No way there's a place in downtown Los Angeles now called corporation food hall Mm -hmm. that like yeah, neither of you have ever yeah. heard of. <laughs>
0: yeah, what an awful name! <laughs> they've got like
1: they've got like six or seven little storefronts. They've already turned them almost all of them over once or twice. And you've got Grand Central Market, the original Los Angeles food hall, 101 years old this year. That's less than six blocks away. So like, I don't know how you compete. And there's more coming. The Santee Alley Food Hall is going to come down there, maybe two blocks from Corporation. And it's like. Unless you're a massive differentiator, unless you get a plug, you get a Howland Rays, you get a Nancy Silverton to come lock in your strategy or you make it a super walkable neighborhood that suddenly Amazon's going to drop 100,000 people into, there's just no way. I, I go down here in Orange County, it's like, okay, I understand these places are busy on the weekends. I understand they're drawing in a particular type of crowd, but there is not enough money and density for people to spend all their time and cash at these places there just isn't the really really smart business model i think that's going to make sense for the future is like public private partnerships so you see this now in thai town in los angeles where the business center for thai town that is since 1994 been doing these like outreach programs for young entrepreneurs to give them business acumen and advice to build business model plans and things like that they're now starting a food hall above a metro stop that is going to like guarantee to rotate out new new vendors every three years so like if you don't have the money to go start your own Thai food restaurant down the block and it's already so impacted come into the food hall figure out if it works and move on to something else like that sort of thing where it's almost entirely underwritten by a business organization and you just get to go in and try something out makes a lot of sense
0: hmm. sorry brain fart
2: <laughs> are you ex- are you excited about the next generation of diners and if you, you could quote unquote call them Gen Z the people younger than us. Um, and again, I don't want to load this question, but from what you personally understand of that dining group, what do you think about it?
1: I'm worried in one sense, like, I'm on Instagram. I use Instagram as more of like a business outreach thing. I get a ton of DMs. I get to take nice photos of food, and it's like a way to show that I'm in different restaurants all the time doing different stuff, but it's not the same as trying to use it as a marketing tool. Like, I, I ho- hopefully nobody that I ever take a photo of thinks that their food is going to get famous as a result. Like, I think that's a bad way to try to lean into making money. It is so hard to be an operator in the restaurant space that if that's all you've got to offer, if you've got a hundred thousand Instagram followers and your food sucks, like that is scary stuff. And from a diner perspective, to just see that stuff all the time and get inundated with it and then go to a place that can't deliver might turn you off on the whole genre and then you're like losing out on money from the entire ecosystem. So I'm worried that we are losing, to your point from before, the ability to tell those kinds of broader stories across different multiple outlets. But I also think young diners to the other side of the coin are pretty savvy. Like. Maybe they go and try little damage and get the black ice cream and throw it in the fucking trash on their way out and nobody cares. As a sidebar, like maybe the saddest thing is like seeing the velvet rope that's still at little damage when they used to have a line and now they don't anymore, but the rope is still up. Like I think I think that's that's a bad side of what this thing can be, but People can do that and they can take the Instagram photo and then they can also save up their money and go to a Providence and go to another fine dining restaurant and have that one meaningful, awesome experience that changes their life. And if we can be storytellers that help connect those people to the restaurant that really matters to them long term, then we're
0: doing our job. Are you ordering out at all using Postmates and stuff?
1: I mean, it's every once in a while, but yeah. like uh, I I have not cooked a meal in my house since October. Like
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I
1: try not to take leftovers home. Like none of that, I, my job is to be in restaurants. And yeah. if I want to be good at it, it's a lot about being out there shaking hands.
0: I mean, I think that's becoming a bigger part of the dining scene, especially For sure. like everywhere, right? But speaking in LA, do you have to start looking at how you might review or talk about food that gets delivered yeah. as, as like restaurants get more expensive to run, footprints are getting smaller and cool concepts are coming out that mm-hmm. might just deliver or a lot, a majority of their business might be delivery and takeout. Do you ever think about how you would even talk about food like that?
1: Yeah. It's it's a, an interesting question because our stance, our big delineation line has always been like, we don't talk about products, right? I'm not out shilling like the new cereal that's on the grocery store floor, mm. but Delivery is in this weird model where it's not a place where somebody can walk in and exchange money for food But it is a place where you can order through your app and eat it at home And so like are we losing the conversation about ambiance about service about backstory if people can just put in Multiple different pizza concepts under the same roof and do this like cloud kitchen model. I don't know I don't think that we found a good way to talk about it yet the only in we've really done so far is when a chef of a certain notoriety happens to get into that game, whether it's an Eric Greenspan from television or like Casilla in Santa Monica is going to start launching something soon. So like that's more tied to a brick and mortar or an old chef name, but for the future, for places that are like truly delivery only and people that you've never heard of, I don't know. It's going to be really, really hard. Yeah. Like if I want to try it for the first time to see if it's good, I'm, what, I'm just going to like get it delivered to the coffee shop I'm working at. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough thing. We're going to have to deal with more.
2: Is that, in aggregate, when you're talking with your sources and your chefs and your restaurateurs, do they understand like the opportunity with delivery? But in my head, they fucking hate it. They yeah. they hate the fact that like they're making food, it's sitting, it's sitting longer as it gets delivered. They don't have control of the person delivering it, and they're the one getting the bad Yelp review. Yeah. What are What are your sources telling you?
1: I mean Dave Chang tried to do a delivery only restaurant business model in New York City which does more delivery than us by a pretty wide margin and it failed. Like if Dave Chang can't make it work, I don't I don't know what there is to say and Dave Chang's still high on it He believes that delivery is in some sense like the food of the future or the, the model for the future um, Most restaurant people that I talk to feel like it is a necessary evil Especially if you walk into these places and they've got like five different iPads and different systems yeah. all set up Like the guy who's really gonna make a mint is the person who can come in and consolidate that shit into one easy-to-use device The same way that like open table has taken over the market on reservations for better or worse Like I don't think that restaurants are receptive enough to it yet and the amount of money to be made because there's a degradation in quality. There's a uh, high overhead cost, and it's hard to like utilize especially with people like Caviar or Postmates where they may not even be set up for delivery but then somebody comes in and just places an order for a walkout and drives it across town and that chef is like, yeah, I'm going to get a fucking one-star Yelp review because my noodles were cold but you live 35 minutes away. What am I supposed to do? So it's it's going to be about balance. People that embrace it like we're going to do an, a delivery-only menu or people like Coza Buona and echo park where they can deliver the same pizzas that they've got but they also have like a type 27 license and they could deliver you a bottle of wine like that is the really smart model that's going to exist for the future everything else is just going to be people flailing around
0: do you think like postmates and uber eats have like too much power right now uh because the fact that they don't have to ask the restaurant permission right. to almost go get that food from you
1: yeah i don't i don't know how you stop them i don't you you the person who runs Postmates, I assume doesn't have to like walk in and be like, Hey, I'm here from Postmates. They could just put on a fake mustache and just go in and be like <laughs> one order for James Smith. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't know how you stop that sort of stuff. Unless you're like, Bud Mosh where you're like, yeah, we don't do takeout. Like mm-hmm. you just may have to make it an, an dining in experience, but then you are limiting a certain amount of money that you can make or a customer base.
2: Based on the frequency of, of restaurant openings and, and again, your sources, Do you think we're in a restaurant bubble? Um, And if so, do you think we're hitting the breaking point in the next year or two? Um, Not to ask a completely loaded question. I I mentioned this earlier, but I personally do think we're in one. Food halls was part of that question. Uh, But I'm curious about what you're seeing from the true operators running sit-down restaurants that, you know, Aren't based off of Instagram <laughs> um, that are that are doing good things. Yeah. Is there enough to support the good things and the good restaurants of Los Angeles?
1: So like restaurants as a whole are never going to go away. Totally. And, and restaurants in Los Angeles and the way that we dine are never going to go away. The reason there's 50,000 street food vendors in Los Angeles' county is because there's a there's a business market there for it. People want to eat on the street. They want to eat inexpensively. They want to eat in their neighborhoods. That sort of stuff is always going to continue to matter. The same thing with high-end restaurants. We've gained restaurants like Vespertine that are these like supposedly world-class dining experiences because because there is money out there for it. The new manufacturing at the Row in downtown, that's like for a combination between Chris Bianco out of Phoenix and the Tartine people from San Francisco, they, in their marketplace, they sell ceramic mugs that are 78 bucks. And I <laughs> I held it and I looked at the number and I almost dropped it. And then I was like, don't drop it. You're going to be out 78 bucks. <laughs> but like, it, I mean, on, my immediate thought is like, who would ever pay for this? And my second thought is somebody, because it's here. They, like, there is that model that money does exist in the city that we live in for somebody to come and buy that $78 mug. So, what you're really getting is a split down the middle people who really care and want to eat in their neighborhoods, people who are willing to go out and spend a bunch of money. The 45 seat Italian restaurant that's like kind of inexpensive and pretty good in your neighborhood is the one that's the most in trouble. And when you think about like, Rising minimum wage costs, which I personally am for but without a tipped minimum where like front of house staff can make You know seven to eight times more than the kitchen staff and the kitchen staff can't even afford to live in the city in which they're trying to cook like that stuff resonates all the way down. Minimum wage means not only do you have to pay the dishwasher a certain amount and the head chef, you also have to pay the guy who's picking the produce that then goes to the farmers market that you go then buy. So when the price becomes unsustainable, it's like I, I don't know what you do at that point unless you just give over to conglomerates like Cisco, who are commodifying the industry and like selling you the shittiest pos- possible product for the cheapest possible amount, just so you can stay in business. More importantly, as like a full stop overall statement. People need to wake up to how much it costs to run a restaurant. What it costs to be in this business. The price that you pay if you go to Whole Foods and buy like beef and you're like, this is expensive. It's like, this is what we should all be paying for beef. And if that price is expensive, it means you should be eating less of it. We've like undervalued restaurants for so long because we don't put in a tip, right? So you got to add 20% at the end. Different little weird things like that. People who own the building don't pay taxes. Like we've undervalued it for so, so long that people are just now waking up to how expensive it and how rare it should be to actually get to eat out. And until that happens, you're going to start to see more food halls, more restaurants close.
2: Is there a problem with gratuity in restaurants now? And what would what would your proposed solution be?
1: If we could wake up tomorrow and there was uh, just a flat rate and everybody knew what you paid for and you could walk out the door like they do in a lot of other countries, that would be awesome. But it doesn't work that way. You don't get to flip the switch. So you look at like Andy Ricker who came down from um, Pok in Portland and tried to open like – I think he did a lot of things wrong in terms of the conversation he was trying to have about moving to Los Angeles, but he also is very honest about, he's like, I can't sell a bowl of noodles with fresh vegetables for $12 if the restaurant next to me is doing it for $7. The difference is they're using like way worse ingredients. It's a family owned, they own the business. It's like the son who's giving you the bowl of noodles and they don't have to pay him anything because he's quote unquote a part owner. And Andy Ricker's got 200 seats and a bunch of people that he needs to pay. So once you look at that model and they're $5 apart for what is ostensibly the same meal, Nobody wins. Andy Ricker's charging too much. These people are charging too little. But to add like the tip line on top of that, or to say like we're valuing things at different levels, it means that like you're just going to have this super confusing system. So I think. More importantly, whether or not we ever get rid of tipping, which probably won't happen in my lifetime, I think at a state level we need to figure out what we're doing with service charges. How many restaurants you guys go to now that say 15% service charge added or 4% added for healthcare, or something like that. At, there is no obligation right now for the owner of that restaurant to do anything with that money. The state does not say here's how you have to spend it or what you're agreeing to spend it on. They could buy a yacht if they wanted to. Like The moment we can get to a place where that money gets pointed in a useful direction, more people will probably start moving to that model and then it'll start shifting the conversation about what we're paying for.
2: So is that first step legislation?
1: Yes, legislation. And you see this already. I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to talk about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm not in any ethics groups that are out there trying to affect change up in Sacramento, but like, that's what's going to have to happen is the legislation side. People start saying, here's how we can spend our money and here's how we can't spend our money. So let's all move to a service charge model so that we can get away from tipping overall.
2: Who cares enough about that to lobby legislation or legislators to actually do something about it. Cause that's where I agree with you. Yeah. I would love to see that model too. I like the restaurants aren't going to do it necessarily. And so I'm just like, does that mean is that what's driving employees food of food restaurants yeah. Have, yeah. Have, have to be louder? Does that mean like media who believes like this is more for equality has to be louder I don't I don't have that answer. So that's kind of an open No, I think
1: I think it comes from all places I think the media what we've been writing about we can certainly do more I do think there are restaurants that just happen to care you look at a place like Barcito in downtown Los Angeles They've always been like a tip included model. They've always had a service charge And so for that restaurant to look across the street and see a place that's doing it cheaper Just because they don't have the service model included even if you're spending the same amount at the end of the bill they go like, well, I can either die on the vine because people think that restaurant's cheaper or I can go up to Sacramento and start affecting change. That's the sort of stuff that you need to see happen. Like, No matter how many articles I write about it, until people go and put it in the face of their legislators, nothing's going to be any different.
2: What's new in the world of, of Farley and, and the world of Eater coming up?
1: so we've got a big package that's coming really soon that's all about like mexican food in america and everything that goes along with that historically and currently i'm working on a really cool story about um I mean, it's not going to give away too much here, but like, essentially in the late 1800s and early 1900s in Los Angeles, Mexican restaurants had to call themselves Spanish restaurants as a way to sort of whitewash their own history. Otherwise, newcomers to the city wouldn't spend their money there. Oh, I'm not going to spend my money on a Mexican-owned business, but I will on a Spanish-owned yeah, business sure. because Europeans are great. And so you have all these restaurants. If you go to like the original El Cholo on Western, they still have that first cafe sign from 1927, a Spanish cafe. It's the reason at a sit-down Mexican restaurant, it's still called Spanish Rice. There's nothing Spanish about it, but it's the way that we had to get over the hurdle of dealing with being a mexican city so that sort of stuff is like what i'm the most interested in you know we've got a lot more coming down the line that's in that vein and a bunch of restaurant closings and openings and roy choi calling me a vulture in between now and then <laughs> but the bigger stuff is a lot of fun
2: where uh, where can people find you
1: I am all over the internet at over, over, under, um, that's Instagram, Twitter. You can see la.eater.com for my writing all day long. And I do have a book. It's called Los Angeles street food, a history from Tomaleros to taco trucks. Farley. Thanks for coming on, man. It got
0: real smooth at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. (laughs) You guys are the best. (laughs) The smoothest exit we've ever had (laughs) until you did that. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Now normal exit. Leave a review on the iTunes store. Thank you, guys. Appreciate (laughs) you so much. Love you. And until next week. Adios. Bye.